So I don't know how many of you took this class in college, but you know what was almost the death of me? It was a class called Anatomy and Physiology. Anybody else take that class? So randomly, like it was the only class that fit my schedule at my Bible college where we were all training to be pastors. And they brought in, uh, I don't know, we called her, uh, her name was Nazi Rova. We all called her Nazi Rova. And uh, she was this Russian doctor. And I swear, she, would, she took this class like we were all, she taught this class like we were all trying to become surgeons. You know, anyway, this class, it was tough. And it was almost the death of me. And I remember, actually, I went to a bonfire when that semester was over with a bunch of nursing students. And they were all burning their papers and stuff from at the beach, you know. And I brought my anatomy book, and they were all freaking out. And one guy offered me 100 bucks for it. And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. I want to see this book burn, you know. Anyway, she failed the whole class. Nobody passed. Um, and then she got fired, and they raised uh, the lowest grade to 100. And that brought me to a 73, I think, or something like that. So I passed anatomy and physiology. Anyway, it was a pretty tough class. And do you know why I didn't think it was very important? Because, as it turns out, well, I mean, besides, like, I'm an idiot and everything, uh, I'm not going to be a surgeon, right? And so the class to me was not that interesting. But I thought it was really funny how surprising it was when I went to that bonfire and how much the nurses loved, like, I guess it was a good book, you know, full of color, illustrations of things I never learned. You know, and <clears throat> so it was interesting to them because for them, this was going to be their life's work. But for me, it seemed kind of boring. Today, our sermon and what we're going to cover over the next two weeks is like Christian anatomy and physiology. Right. If this is your life's work, I think this is going to be interesting and this is going to be important to learn. If this is not your life's work, if you're not living missionally and you don't care about the stuff that we're going to talk about, I think some of this is going to seem kind of tedious. So um, <clears throat> what we do every day, I'll explain this real quick because, you know, a couple of you don't know what I'm talking about. But here at the porch, we have a thing we call our Pabst Blue Ribbon Pathway. Is that what we call it? Pathway? So we decided the word. I remember we went through a few words. Um, but it goes like this. It's the hipster, the disgusting hipster beer. And we use it as an acronym. And um, it's... We have people in our lives that we're investing in missionally. We're trying to live with these people. We're trying to love them and serve them and share the gospel with them. And so we pray for them. We ask them about their lives. We bless them in ways nobody else would. We share our personal stories of faith with them. And then we talk to them about the gospel. Pabst Blue Ribbon. It's an easy way to remember. We have our journals that we do. Uh, we write. Each of us is supposed to have three to five Pabst Blue Ribbon people that we're investing in. And we're writing in our journals and doing that sort of stuff. And so what... What we want to do at the porch, like our tagline, what's that called? Our uh, vision statement, whatever it is, is to make and grow disciples. Pretty easy, right? And it was a good one because it's from the Bible, you know? And so that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to make disciples and we're trying to grow disciples. But in order to make disciples, we have to have an actual grasp on what that means. What does it mean for somebody to become a disciple of Jesus? More specifically, what happens when somebody gets saved? What does the process actually look like? And here's the thing. A lot of churches will use words constantly and then never actually teach the people what these words mean. And I grew up in church hearing all of these words, and I didn't learn what most of them meant until I got to Bible college. And I thought, that's a really weird thing to happen. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some of these words, and we're going to do it in the context of the uh, 
not the end, not quite the end, but towards the end of Acts chapter 2, the end of the Pentecost section. Um, now, let's recap Pentecost real quick. The beginning, the people are praying, they're together, the Spirit falls, we saw the tongues of fire, they're broken up, and we talked about the fire in the Old Testament, how the fire fell when Solomon dedicated the temple, fire fell at the dedication of the tabernacle, like the fire was the presence of God. And if, in the Old Testament, if you wanted to go to the presence of God, you had to go to the temple where the fire was, right? Where God said, I'm going to dwell in a special way. And so the tongues of fire was symbolic. The presence of God specifically was dropping on these 120 people. And this, this community and these people now were the, the new temple, right? And all of Acts chapters 1 through 7, the way it's laid out, and that's this first section of Acts that we're going to read, then we're going to take a break and probably do, I think Ephesians is what I'm leaning towards, um, but this whole section is framed like this. The, it's the tale of two temples, right? The, the temple of uh, Herod and that, those guys and the Pharisees, and then the new temple, the temple of the people of Jesus. And so we saw those tongues of fire fall, and then we saw the people speaking in tongues. And when they were speaking in tongues, they were preaching, and the people around them were hearing the gospel in a language that these redneck Galileans didn't know. And so they were speaking the gospel and people from all over the world. We did a whole sermon on the map and we talked about world missions, but the map of where all those different folks came from and how many different languages. And so they were hearing that and this crowd starts to gather. And so Peter then stands up. And the last time we were together a couple weeks ago, we read Peter's whole sermon. He gets up and he preaches a sermon from Joel chapter two and he uses a couple of Psalms as illustrations and he really gets into it. And what I said was we're gonna read to the end of this sermon and then Next time, that's today, we're going to read the reaction to the sermon, right? And so that's where we left off. Um, I want to do one quick side note, though. Uh, so I started writing this, you know, I write these all kind of ahead of time. I'm on a schedule, I write them, you know, and then we canceled once. I actually wrote this a couple of weeks ago. And I started working on it, and I started outlining it. And you know it's never a good sign when I look at the outline and I go boy, there's no way that's going to fit, right? And so what I did was I went through and I started cutting things out. And oh, every cut was like stabbing me in the heart. It's like Sophie's Choice. What do I want? You know, okay, it's not like Sophie's Choice. But um, I started cutting things out. And then you know what I did? I said, you know what? I don't want to cut this stuff out. And so I went back to my Dropbox. See, Dropbox is cool. You can restore files, you know? And I restored the file to right before I cut everything off. And so what we have here is the world's longest sermon. Um, so this is what we're going to do for two reasons. What, we're going to break this up into two sermons. I'm going to break. I love that you're here today. The, the day I'm breaking all the preaching rules, by the way. Everything they taught us in preaching, I'm doing the opposite today. Um, well, Matt, or what's your title? Super, superintendent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is here today with us. Um, anyway, I'm breaking all the rules and I don't care. So normally they tell you to do a three-point sermon. This is like 11 or 12 points. Um, they say you have to have a really good ending. Okay, so what we're going to do today is we're going to go as long as my voice holds up or this timer goes off, and then we're just going to stop wherever that is. And then next week I'm going to stand up, and there's going to be no introduction, and we're going to go, last time I left off on point six. Fair? Okay. Okay, so if you're taking off this week, you're going to have to catch up on the podcast if you want to find out how you can actually get saved. All right, here we go. Uh, so the end of Peter's sermon. This is the last line. I'm, we're doing a little bit of crossover. Let... All the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So this is the end. This is the end of Peter's sermon. 
This is like how he, he hits it home. He talked about that this was God's plan all along. He talks about um, faith and repentance and that sort of stuff. So he gets into it here. This is what you all need to know, that Jesus is the Lord and he's the Christ, even though you guys crucified him. You see that like weird upside down, what? How is he Lord in Christ if he was crucified? And that's what the whole sermon had been explaining, that God wouldn't let his body decay and all this stuff, you know, that God raised him from the dead. He talked about the resurrection. He says, look, and we know because we saw it. That was kind of the big thrust of the sermon. And this is the end. And so he's the Lord and he's the Christ. Lord means like he's the one in charge. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. He's the promised savior. Remember, this crowd is all Jewish folks from all over the world, but they're all Jewish folks. So he's saying, you Jewish guys have been waiting for the Messiah. I'm telling you right now that it's Jesus, and I know because I saw him rise from the dead. And that's a pretty impressive thing to do. So that's the end of the sermon. I think that's interesting. Look what happens next. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's such a great phrase. They were cut to the heart. What's going on here? In John 16, it says this. And this is Jesus talking. When he comes, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin. Wait, do I have this here? No, I don't have this in here. Um, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I like that. This is what's happening. Jesus promised when the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to hear the gospel and then you're going to be convicted of sin. This is the Holy Spirit working in the hearts of the people who were hearing Peter's sermon. I love how Peter never takes credit. There's nothing in the Bible where Peter gets up and he goes, I saved 3,000 people. There's nothing like that. I, I knew a guy growing up who literally kept a tally of how many people he saved. You know, I was like, oh, that's kind of weird because I read the whole Bible once and it doesn't say anything about you getting crucified and rising from the dead. You know, but I love Peter never takes a credit. What's happening here is very clearly something that humans can't do. If a human cuts somebody to the heart, that's a whole different, that's a whole different story. But when we're talking spiritually, they're cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? What shall we do? They wanted to know how to respond. So this, whatever this cutting to the heart was, and we'll talk about it in a minute, was strong enough that they thought, I can't, I have to do something. It wasn't like, huh, that's an interesting thing to believe, right? This, this, this conviction of their sin left them with a sense of, we have to do something. Something has to change. And Peter, verse 38, he said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he tells them to do a couple things. Repent. I've, used this, I've said this a hundred thousand times in church, but the word repentance is like the easiest word to define in all of biblical theology. It just means to turn around. You're looking at one thing, you need to look at something else. You're looking at sin, your whole life is about sin. Sin is over here. I love my sin. It's turn around and look at Jesus. That's what repenting means. That's a kind of a private inward thing. What's the focus of my heart, right? But the second thing is not a private inward thing. The second thing is a public thing. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. This was a public declaration of allegiance to Jesus Christ. What are we, 50? Isn't that what Pentecost is? 50 days, right, after Passover. So we're talking just over a month and a half, almost two months, since they literally murdered Jesus Christ in front of all of us. 
And now he's saying, have the guts to repent inwardly, but outwardly stand up and identify yourself as one of his disciples. And the end game here is for the forgiveness of your sins. Right? The for, this, is, this is what he's getting after here. It helps us in a few ways, right? This, this forgiveness means that we're freed from, first, the ultimate power of sin in our lives. Right? Sin is not the ultimate power anymore because we're not facing sin anymore. We're facing Jesus. Right? Paul talks about that a lot. He says, you know, sin doesn't have the same hold on you that it used to. The second thing, though, is we're freed from the weight of sin. You know that feeling, walking around with the weight of sin on your shoulders before you were a believer? And sometimes Satan sneaks this back in even to us believers, you know. But that, the weight of like, I, just, I know who I am on the inside. I know how horrible I am. That, that we're freed from that weight. And the forgiveness of sin means also, the more obvious one is that we're freed from the consequences. Not earthly consequences, but the eternal judgment consequences that sin brings. Right? But salvation includes more than just like the forgiveness of sins. It includes this positive thing too. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, we did a whole sermon on the Holy Spirit at the beginning of Pentecost. We're not going to super get into this today. But this is what we were talking about a couple weeks ago with the, the gifts of ministry for the church to build up the body, right? And you're going to be filled with the Spirit who unites us uh, to Christ. The Spirit makes us new. He makes us look like Jesus. And then Peter says this, For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. So this promise is something... I love that. He, this, it's a promise. Peter's like, you can take this to the bank, right? You can put your life, the weight of your life on this idea that forgiveness is found in Jesus. And I love that he says this, this is for you, for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Remember, this is the tale of two temples. The temple of Herod and the Pharisees and those leaders was a very exclusive club. It was very much about pushing people out to the margins and saying, you're not part of what we're doing here because you know what? You're not good enough. And then Peter comes along and says, of course you're not good enough. That's the whole point. And as if you know you're not good enough, you're welcome here. And he says, your kids, people who are far off. I think he was thinking, I mean, I have no way to prove this. I bet Peter in his mind was thinking, you're all going to go home and take this message with you to the people who are far off with you. At this point, I think he's still thinking just Jewish folks. But we know through the book of Acts, and we'll read the rest of this, that this expands way out past Jewish folks. And Luke, I bet, words it like this kind of on purpose. Everybody who's far off, because he knows his readers are not just, um, not just Jewish folks. Verse 40, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now, this is important. With many other words, uh, he bore witness. And, you know, what that means is this is very important. When we read these, because we're going to read, I should have written down how many there are, like 9, 10, 13, I don't know, a handful of speeches like this in the book of Acts. Peter gives a couple, Paul gives a couple hundred, Stephen gives one, right? Like we're going to read a bunch of these. But what we're reading here and Luke even tells us these are basically summaries of what was said. Like a lot of it is probably quotations, but it's not like if you read Peter's whole sermon front to back, it takes like two minutes. Yeah, you guys wish, right? <laughs> no. Uh, so 
he specifically says he talked for a couple of hours probably and that's what all pastors should do for all time let's pray no so these are summaries of what's going on here but they're accurate summaries and he was saying so during this there was probably some back and forth more stuff um, was going on and he tells them in that part of what else he told them that wasn't in the sermon was don't be a part of this crooked generation and what he means by that is this is the generation that rejected the messiah when he came so he's he's exhorting them don't reject the messiah like all the people around you repent and be baptized and join our team that's what peter's telling them so do they join the team yeah so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about three thousand souls that's pretty cool. It's one of the coolest parts of the book of Acts. But look what happened. Let's, let's look at the very words here. Those who did what? What did they do? They received his word. What does that mean? It means they believed what he said. To the point where they were willing to be baptized publicly. And if we read back a few verses, be baptized what? In the name of Jesus. So these folks were baptized publicly in the name of Jesus, were brought into this group of 120 disciples, and it's 3,000 people. I like it, um, about 3,000, you know, 3,006, you know. I like that. That's not an exact number. Yeah, that's a big number. Well, like, it was a lot of people. Nobody, they didn't count. And it was like looking, okay, remember the feeding of the 5,000? You know, that looks like about 3,000. It was too many people to count is the point. I like that. Right? It wasn't, and then 13 people came to faith. No, no, no. There's parts of Acts where we know like, and then these two guys came to faith when Peter or Paul's in Athens or whatever. This is so many people. This is overwhelming. Um, and we're going to read about some problems that this creates in the church going forward. Um, I know a church that planted and the pastor told me, I hope after five years we have 100 people and they had 400 people in their second week. And then there were 2000 people a couple of months later and he was completely overwhelmed because this was not the plan. And all of a sudden he's managing this massive organization and that's not what he signed up for. That's, I think, what's going on and we're gonna read a little bit of that. 3,000 people come to faith, it's super cool. All right, so this whole story is amazing. Peter preached, a bunch of people, they turned to Jesus. Now what I wanna do with most of our time is I wanna stop here. We're gonna get into, in a couple of weeks, uh, Acts 2.42 uh, and the blueprint for the church and then the rest of chapter two, what did the early church look like? We're gonna get into all that later. I want to stop here and I want to ask this question. What happened to these people when it said that they were added to the church? When these people repented and were baptized, what does that process actually look like? And now we're going to get into the anatomy and physiology of um, salvation. And so what we're going to do here is we're going to go through something called the Ordo Salutis. It's going to be on the test. So... You better remember that. No, um, it's just Latin for, I think it's the, what, the order of salvation. I think is what that means. Um, so I want to read you this verse here. So we get this from this verse here uh, in Romans. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, if we take this verse in Romans as a starting point, and we work in some stuff from Ephesians and Colossians and some of the other parts of the New Testament, we can piece together what the Reformers called the order of salvation, the ordo salutis. And I want to walk through these ideas 
each of these things one by one. And um, because let me give you three reasons why we're going to do it this way, why we're stopping here to do this long systematic theology, which is not normally how we do sermons. But I'm going to give you all this information. Oh, and all this stuff, you don't have to write anything down. It's all in that bulletin. No, what do we call it? Booklet. It's all in the booklet that's online. And we'll post it on the web page when this podcast goes up and everything. So you don't have to like frantically take notes on anything. Just watch what's behind me and then you can go look at it later. Um, but I'm going to give you three reasons why. The first is doing this will help us understand what happened to these 3,000 folks in our passage. That's the first reason. The second reason is I think this will help you understand what happened when you got saved. Right? Um, one time I had surgery. See, big, I have a big scar on my arm. You know why I have a scar on my arm? Because then I broke the cast with a ball-peen hammer so I could play basketball in the summer. I was 15, you know, and now I have a scar, giant scar for the rest of my life because I was playing. But anyway, I had surgery, and they asked, somebody asked me once, what did they do in your surgery? I was like, well, I don't know. They fixed my wrist. Oh, what, like, was it ligament? Oh, I don't know. I couldn't explain it. I look like an idiot. I just had surgery that I didn't even know exactly what was happening during that surgery. That's one thing we want to avoid. We want to know what happened to us. We've all had this spiritual surgery. God has worked this stuff in our lives. And if we're going to live into these truths that God tells us is true about us, we should know what those truths are. And so that's why we're going to do this somewhat tedious, long, ordo salutis sermon. The third reason is because this is what we do all day. If we're going to take our Pabst Blue Ribbon stuff seriously, we're going to need to answer questions about our faith. We're going to pray that people come to salvation, come to know Jesus, come to turn and repent, and have all this stuff that we're about to talk about happen to them. So we should actually know what it is. What's the order? Like, I mean, how does that work? Like, what is salvation? We use very general language. Oh, I was saved. I was redeemed. I was, I converted, right? I was born again. What does all that stuff mean? That's what we're going to talk about. So I'm going to give you the list real quick, and then we're going to start going through it. And we'll get through just a couple of these, and then we'll finish next week, okay? All right, here we go. The first one is election and predestination. The second one is the gospel call. The third one is called regeneration. The fourth one is conversion. Yeah, I'm still going. There's 10 of these. The fifth one is justification. The sixth one is adoption. The seventh one is sanctification. The eighth is perseverance. The ninth is glorification. That's the end of the Ordo Salutis. And then I have a tenth point where I tell, I'm going to talk about what's even the, what's the main purpose of our salvation, and it's not what you think. We're going to talk about the glory of God in our salvation. All right, so we got two weeks to get through. Well, I'm already halfway done today, but we'll get, we have a week and a half to get through these ten, all right? So let's get going here. First, election and predestination. So we're going to read a lot of definitions, and it's all going to be on the test. No, you don't have to remember any of these definitions. It's just going to help us. You guys know who J.I. Packer is? Yeah, he was pretty cool. Uh, I'm going to get coffee with him someday when we're dead. All right, here. He said this. The, so describing the biblical doctrine, right, of election predestination. Uh, the doctrine of election is that before creation, God selected out of the human race, foreseen and fallen, those whom he would redeem, bring to faith, justify and glorify through Jesus Christ. Now, this is not the time for an entire sermon on election and predestination. We're going to get into this a little bit more way in Acts um, 10, 16, um, when we talk about Lydia and the verse where he says he opened her heart to believe, you know, we're going to talk about it a little bit more there. Um, and we'll probably get into this a little bit if we do Ephesians next, but 
uh, yeah, let me just, I'll, I gave you the definition. Let's look at this real quick. It's the idea that before creation, think about that for a second. We're told elsewhere in the New Testament that our names were written in that book right before the foundation of the world. Your name was like, it said there was a book in heaven that said John Brackett, and then God created the world, right? That's important. So before that, he looked into human history and he says, I'm going to save this John guy. That's an important thing because what that means is it's, I don't get any of the credit for my salvation. I don't get to boast about how great I am or how smart I am or that I'm the one that finally understood what God was doing, right? He chose me and everything that happens here is because he does this to me. Now let's look for a second at some of the, this is one of those questions. I studied this for, I used to not believe in this kind of stuff at all. And then I studied it for like three years. So you're not going to get this in like a five minute thing where I'm talking about this now. But let's look at some of the biblical support here. Right, Ephesians talks about this. He chose us even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us in him. Right, the, the very clear emphasis there is not on anything we do, but on something that God does. Second Timothy, uh, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He's the one that called us. Like my salvation was up to him, not up to me. Sort of. We'll get into that. Jesus said this specifically. Nobody can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Right? God is the one who draws the people that he has elected to draw. And then Acts 13. And when the Gentiles heard this, the preaching of the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So those who were elected to eternal life believed. Now, I want to just stop there for a second. And I want to tell you what this doesn't mean. Okay, we're not going to like, we're not going to dive into the depths of this doctrine because I am going to do a longer sermon on this later. And I know this is the most controversial one in our list of uh, nine of these, right? So we're going to get into this more later. But a couple of things. This doesn't mean that we are robots who have no free will. The Bible never pits the free will of humanity against the will of God, right? It holds those two things in tension. Okay, that's the first thing. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to regeneration. The second thing is this doesn't mean the Bible, I'm sorry, the Bible doesn't really say, and this is what some people will say, that election is really God looking forward into time and seeing who is going to become a believer. And then back in time, he elects that person. He does it because of some sort of knowledge of who was going to be saved. The problem with that is every time when the Bible talks about predestination and election, the person acting and the whole weight of it lands on God, not on any sort of human choice. And it's kind of a misreading of a verse from the book of Romans where it talks about foreknowledge and stuff, but that's not exactly, I'm not getting into that now, but it's not what it means. Right? So it doesn't mean God looks forward. What it means is God looks forward and he looked at you, if you're a believer, and he looked at all the sin in your heart and he looked at all the stupid things you say to people and all the selfishness that you carry with you every day all the times that you've lied, all the times that you sat in church and listened to a sermon, and then you went home and you did the exact opposite of what was preached in church because of the fallenness and the brokenness of your sinful heart. And God looked forward in time at all of those horrible things about you. And he said, you know what? I'm going to say that one anyway. 
that one belongs to me. I love him. I love her. And then Jesus came knowing that God had told him, those are the ones we're going to save. And then he saves you. That's what election means, right? The other thing this doesn't mean is that we should walk around wondering who's elect. Okay, we should treat everybody like we have no idea. My pastor, my old pastor used to kind of joke, when you get to heaven, you're going to be confused by a few things. First, you're going to go, I can't believe I'm here. <laughs> the second thing, you're because you know the sinfulness of your heart. The second thing you're going to go is, I can't believe she's here. <laughs> and then the third thing you're going to go is, where's pastor, what's his face? <laughs> right? And the idea behind that is, we have no idea what's in people's hearts and what's really going on. And nothing in the Bible tells us to go around like election investigators, a bunch of election Sherlock Holmes is trying to figure out who's elect and who's not. The doctrine of election is for like, okay, you've been saved. Now here's the thing. You should be really happy about this election stuff. When we're out there doing ministry and we're, we're sharing the gospel and we're doing our PAP stuff, there's no part of us that is ever called to go, I'm just going to give out on this person. I don't think they're elect, right? That's an absolutely wicked way to operate. Okay, so after election then comes the next thing in our list is called the gospel call. Now, this is the easiest one. I don't have a bunch of verses for this. This one's pretty simple. The gospel call is the preaching of the gospel externally, right? Election, well, the call kind of works in two phases, but like election is what happened before the world began. And then you were born. And at some point, somebody shared the gospel with you, didn't they? That's how you became a believer. Billy Graham, maybe. He came through here in the 90s. Uh, maybe it was your youth pastor. You know, for a lot of people, it was your mom, right? It was a Sunday school teacher. It was, a, uh, for a lot of folks, it was somebody in college. Like, bang for your buck, by the way. There's very few ministries that are as powerful as college ministries. I love those guys who are out there on the front lines having these conversations. So many people get saved in college, and I love it. So maybe it was that. Maybe you were at college or whatever. Somebody spoke the gospel to you, and you heard it. And that, so that's the next step. You have to actually hear... Sorry, I'm chewing on this thing here. You have to actually hear the gospel. Now, where do we see that in our text? In our, we're going to ask these questions. Where do we see these doctrines in our text? Some of them, we're going to do that thing where pastors stretch it, you know, but we'll get there. Um, in our text, it's very simple. These are people, they stood there and they listened to Peter preaching. Now, this is important though. The inward stuff is God's job. The outward stuff is our job. Does that make sense? We're called to present the gospel the way Peter did and then just see what happens. And there are people in that group who are elect and God saved those people. I bet the crowd was bigger than 3,000 people. Not everybody heard that gospel call, hit them in the heart. Now, this gives us a side note of just quick immediate application. In our context, it is very important as we're thinking about our Pabst Blue Ribbon stuff and our missional living and all this stuff, it's very important to remember what's in our control and what's not in our control. And ministries always go sideways when they try to pretend like they can control the things that God has told us only he controls, right? And they become abusive and all sorts of really terrible things happen. The outward call of the gospel is in our control. Empowered by the Spirit, though, still, but it's what we do. This is our job. We preach the gospel, and we try our best to contextualize the gospel. So we give the gospel to people in terms that they can, in bites that they can swallow, in ways that they can understand. 
This is why every pastor had a humongous man crush on Tim Keller, right? Before he died, because Keller was the master at contextualization, at presenting the gospel in a way that people could actually understand um, and in a way people can digest. So let me give you an example. Imagine you spend a bunch of time talking to one of your friends or neighbors, you know, whoever it is, coworker, somebody in your pap's list. And the more you hear about the life story, the more one theme bubbles up to the top, that they are riddled with guilt um, because of how often they've let people down. Have you ever met somebody like this? I know I picked this because it's one of the more common ones. So you, they start telling you about stories about, you ask them, are you close to your parents? No, not really. I grew up in one of those really tough households. My dad had all these expectations and I just never, I never measured up. And now because of that, we're not really that close. I never lived up to those expectations. And then a couple weeks later, you're talking and they say something like, my spouse, you know, my wife, my husband, whatever, is always wanting more from me than I can give them. And you just see the guilt in their face and they're sort of riddled with this guilt. Now, I've never really had a lot of friends because I don't know, I can tell people are never really happy with what I'm about, what I'm doing, you know. I've never really gotten close to people. You can see this kind of guilt. And for a person like this, a big obstacle to salvation is this. They don't feel like they can ever be good enough for God. God is just going to be one more thing in that list of people that they are going to let down. And so a gospel presentation that's within our power is to really do what we talk about a lot and actually listen to people's stories and understand who they really are be actually interested in them, not that fake Christian listening thing where you just wait until they shut up so you get to talk, but like we actually listen to people and get to know their hearts and we spend time with them and then we live with them and we get this sense so then we can, we can present the gospel in a way that they understand, right? Emphasizing, of course you're not going to be good enough for God, but no matter how much you're not good enough for God, he's going to love you anyway. The love you never had from your dad, the love you don't experience with your friends, right? The love, that, the, the disappointment that you feel for letting your spouse down, God is never going to have those feelings with you. When you come and repent, he's the one person who is always going to be loving towards you. He's always going to be gracious and merciful. And a lot of that stuff that you're looking for can be fulfilled. Now, what's going to happen if you present the gospel that way? I don't have any idea. It's not our job, right? That's our job. It's not our job to figure out what happens in people's hearts. It's not our job. See, when I was a young youth pastor, I thought it was my job to change people's hearts. And when I had a kid walk away from faith, it was devastating. You know why? Because it was my fault. Because I wasn't a good enough pastor. Because I wasn't a good enough friend and mentor and whatever to these kids. See, I thought I, my job was to change hearts. And then I started reading my Bible. And I was like reading some parts. I was like, oh, hey, look at that. It's not my job to change people's hearts. And all of a sudden, I had this freedom in my life that, okay, I have to be responsible for what I'm responsible for and not try to take responsibility for the things that are out of my control. And that's what we want to do with our past people. So that's the second thing, the gospel call. <coughs> now, that's what's up to us. Now let's keep going. Uh, let's see. Let's look at this. This might be the last one we do. Let's see. All right, everybody stretch. You good? Here we go. More definitions, more John coughing. This is not going to win any sermon awards, by the way. All right, here we go. Um, Wayne Grudem, don't Google him, uh, said this. Regeneration is a great book. And then he said some crazy things, but I'm still going to read his book here. Uh, regeneration is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. This is sometimes called being born again. 
So this phrase, <coughs> sorry, this phrase, regeneration, is synonymous, is that the right word? Yeah, yeah, synonymous with the phrase born again. This is what Jesus talked about when he was chatting with Nicodemus, uh, the chicken who wouldn't talk to him in the daytime, right? He's chatting with Nicodemus and he talks about being born again. By the way, I love how dumb people are in the Bible because it makes me feel good for being dumb, you know? He's like, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what am I supposed to crawl back? And she's like, no, dude, come on, man. Like, no, no, no. We're talking about something else here, right? And so this, this is what it is. He's talking about regeneration. Now let's look at this definition real quick. It's a secret act of God. What this means is the moment when I'm talking to my friend about the gospel and I say, whatever I just, that whole spiel I just gave, God will never let you down. At some point in a conversation like that, somebody's heart will be regenerated. And you know what I'll see from my view? Nothing. I don't know. It's not, there, nobody glows. Moses glowed. He was the last guy, right? It's not something that I can see from sitting across the table exactly. I can see a lot of the fruit of regeneration, but the actual moment of regeneration, we don't get to peek in on. And what happens in that secret moment? God imparts new spiritual life to us. We read a lot in Ezekiel. We just finished Ezekiel. And we read, remember all this stuff about the dry bones? And we read about people's dead heart. I will give you a new heart. You know, I'll bring your heart back to life. You know why? Because your heart is dead. That illustration is really important. The Bible doesn't really say you're sick and you need to get better. Like the Bible uses very extreme language to talk about the state of humanity spiritually. It says you're dead. What can a dead person do to fix themselves? Nothing. A sick person can take cough drops, right, and uh, antibiotics and these li weird little jelly-looking cough drop pills, like little balls. That was super weird, right? All the stuff I've been taking all week. You can, if you're sick, you can try to make yourself better. That's the point. You can't regenerate yourself. You're dead. You need to be spiritually, you need a new heart. You need to be brought back to life. And when you're brought back to life, what we'll see is he brings your heart back to life and then your, your eyes are open for the first time and you look up and you see the beauty of the Lord and you see the glory of God and you go, that's what I choose. Now, people think because of election, one of the um, sort of ways that people sort of badmouth people who believe in election and that sort of stuff is they say, oh, they just think humans are robots and they don't believe in free will. But we absolutely do believe in free will. And so let me explain to you how this happens. God has called you from eternity past. You hear the gospel. He regenerates your heart. But then using your own free will, because you've been made alive, you choose, and that's what we'll read about next, um, you choose to turn and to repent and to be converted. You choose him. He fixes the part of you, though, that never wanted to choose him in the first place. You always had the free will to choose God. You were just so broken, you didn't want to. And I found the I, I don't like saying the perfect illustration, but you guys, I've been waiting two years to use this illustration. I found the perfect illustration. Okay, so I have a brother. I have two brothers. And one of my brothers got COVID real bad. Like, you know, I talked to him one night and he's like, I think I've got to go to the hospital. Like, I can't breathe and that sort of stuff. And the next day he was kind of okay. Not okay, but he was on the mend. He never went to the hospital. Got through it, but it was like one of those people that had a really rough go. And this is back when everybody still cared about COVID. Now we all pretend like it's not even a thing, but you know what I mean, back a couple years ago. So he got COVID. And when COVID was over, he got better, started testing negative. And then he woke up one day and he poured himself a bowl of cereal. 
the cereal tastes like athlete's foot, you know? Uh, that's what I always say about food. It tastes like, I don't even know where I heard that. I've been saying that since I was a kid. Tastes like athlete's foot. Nasty. Huh, the cereal went bad. I think this is, I'm kind of filling in some details, but I think this is kind of how it went. So he threw the cereal away. You know what, I'm gonna go eat a peach. Takes a bite of the peach. Wow, this peach is bad. Throws the peach away. You know what, maybe I'll have a Snickers bar or whatever, I don't know what he ate. Oh man, this Snickers bar too. Boy, all the food in my house went bad. So then he started realizing everything I taste tastes bad. So he went to the doctor and he had a disease called parosmia. That was a side effect of COVID that like one in a thousand people got apparently. Like a lot of people got this thing called parosmia. I'm okay. I'm, you guys, I failed anatomy and physiology. I don't know anything about anything. So I'm going to read to you from the internet. Have you heard of it? About parosmia. It's a dysfunctional smell detection characterized by the inability of the brain to correctly identify an odor's natural smell. Instead, the natural odor is transformed into an unpleasant aroma, typically burned, rotting, fecal, chemical smell. So what it means is his brain got rewired by COVID and he picked up a peach and he took a bite of a peach that tastes exactly like a peach and his brain sent him a signal that says, this tastes like when you throw up and he throws the peach down. And he had this for months and months and months. Now I tell you that because it's the perfect illustration for what was wrong with humanity. You know, I was talking about being dead and stuff, but I like this illustration too. This is not a biblical illustration. Don't put this up with the Bible, but the idea is you always had the free will to pick up a peach and taste it. But to you, because your brain was broken, every peach that you tasted, tasted like throwing up, tasted like motor oil or whatever. He said a lot of things taste like gasoline. You ever accidentally got gasoline in your mouth? I have. Motorcycles, yeah, you know, working on bikes and stuff. I've definitely had gas spill all over my face. Anyway, um, everything to him tasted like gas. So he would wake up in the morning and he was free to go eat a peach. He was free to go eat some Captain Crunch or some chicken wings. That's the only things I eat. I don't know what else kind of foods there are. But um, he was free to eat those things, but his brain said, you don't want those things. Every day, the fallen world wakes up and they look at God and they're free to choose God. They're free to love God. They're free to turn to God, right? They're free to be his people. And they look at him and they go, you taste like gasoline. I don't want anything to do with you. Regeneration is where God gets in there and he says, you know what? I'm going to fix the broken part of you. I'm going to fix the part of you that thinks I taste like gasoline. And it happens in an instant and it's a secret act. And then one day you wake up and you taste the peach and it tastes like a peach. You go, oh my gosh, I love fruit. I'm just imagining because I haven't had a piece of fruit in like six years, but you know what I mean? You taste it and you go, this is the best cheesesteak I've ever had. That's more of my style. I want to eat cheesesteaks for the rest of my life because now God has fixed me. That's what regeneration is. It's the part where God secretly goes in and he fixes you. Look at the biblical support for this. This is Acts 16. I was close. I think that's what I mumbled under my breath when I wasn't sure of the chapter. Uh, there was a lady who heard us from, uh, named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. So she was a Kings fan. Well, it's okay. We still like her. Um, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord, <laughs> the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's regeneration. Paul speaking, God regenerates us. Uh, you were 
Oh wait, sorry, this is another, just like that we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses. Um, oh, this didn't put the whole thing. Let me read this to you. Um, oh wait, it is here. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. I'm going to fast forward a few verses. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. You were dead, and God spiritually, he brought you back to life. Now in our text, it's kind of hard to see because it's an invisible thing. And in regeneration, so we don't know exactly where this happened in the text. As Peter was preaching, this was happening to people all throughout the crowd. You know, you need to repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And at that moment, the Spirit spoke to their hearts and awakened them like the stuff in Ezekiel and the dry bones and all that sort of stuff. This was God bringing to life their dead hearts. And we know that it happened because the next thing is they responded to the gospel. That's our fourth one is conversion. Let me look here. That's going to take too long. Okay. We got through three of them and the text. I still kind of have a voice. All right. This is our stopping point. Somebody better remember where we stopped. I don't even write this down. All right. So next week we're going to read about conversion, the responding to the gospel after uh, we have these regenerated hearts. And then what happens after that? All the other stuff, sanctification, justification, perseverance, right? Can I walk away from my faith? Glorification, what happens in heaven? All that sort of stuff. Cool. All right. So I know it's kind of a weird ending to the sermon. There's no like, okay, you know what pastors usually do where they get to the end of the sermon and then they get real quiet and they go, this is the serious part, you guys. And then you know, oh, he's tugging at my heartstrings. We don't have that today. I could do that. You don't know. So we're just in a super weird hard stop. Let's pray. And then we'll uh, worship for the thinking about the couple of things that God we read about today. Um, and then we'll jump back into this. Um, I don't know how many of you guys were here. I think a couple of you were missing last week. But here's what's going on. Here's what the sermon is. So last week we did a sermon on Acts chapter 2, the middle of Acts chapter 2 there. And in, uh, as I was writing that sermon, I outlined, the way I work is I kind of outline things first and then I fill in details and I move things around and whatever while I'm working on sermons. And um, last week, sorry, let me turn my timer on so I don't go until tomorrow. Um, last week, speaking of going way too long, uh, while I was writing it, hmm, there we go. While I was outlining it, I mean, I looked at the outline and I thought, boy, this is going to take like 11 hours. This is, there's no way this is all going to fit in one sermon. So then I deleted a bunch of stuff and everything I deleted, I was like, oh, I can't believe it. I really like that part, you know? And so what I did was I went back into my Dropbox and I restored the first version that I had that was super long. And I decided this is what we're going to do. I'm just going to start the sermon. And when my timer goes off, we're just going to stop wherever I stop. And then next week, we're going to just pick it up right in the middle of the sermon. So if you're here this week and you weren't here last week, you're getting the second half of a very long sermon. Um, but I'll just recap real quick what we talked about. So we read the end of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. So the Spirit falls. They start speaking in tongues into languages that nobody around them knew. or the, Sorry, that they didn't know, but the people around them did. And people were hearing the gospel preached in their own language. And then Peter gets up and he preaches this sermon and he says, um, this is the end of the sermon, the last line. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he challenges the people and then they said this. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? 
And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who were received, so those who received his word and were baptized, uh, sorry, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so last week, what I asked, the question I asked was, what happened to these people? How did they go from a couple of weeks earlier, the crowd in Jerusalem, I mean, there's probably some overlap, it's not 100% of these people were, you know, but basically the crowd in Jerusalem was shouting for Jesus to be crucified, to now all of a sudden, they're making a public declaration of repentance and faith, and they're being baptized. So what is the process of salvation? And what I said was, we want to learn about this for a few reasons. We want to learn what happened to these people, just to learn the text. We want to know what happened in our own salvation. And then we also want to know what happens when, what's the goal of Pabst Blue Ribbon stuff? All right, we're reaching out, we're doing this missional living. So what is the process of salvation? What I said was the process is nine things long. All right, we have nine headers. And last week we got through the text and the first three of them. So today we're going to finish. So last week we talked about election and predestination, everybody's favorite topic. Then we talked about the gospel call. So from before time, God looked into history and he said, I'm going to save that guy, even though he hates me. I'm going to reach down and I'm going to change his heart. Then there's the gospel call, which is the public declaration and the hearing of the gospel that hits the elect in the heart. And then the third thing is called regeneration, where God renews the heart of fallen and dead sinners so that then they will look at him and go, yeah, that's what I want, right? That my broken heart was fixed and now I get to choose to follow Christ. And so that's where we're just picking up the sermon. So that's not very, uh, that's not a very gripping introduction, but this is where we are. So we're going to pick it up here with our fourth idea. Speaking of the, it's called, oh, I, I forgot to mention this too. This whole process is called the Ordo Salutis in theology. And I said, remember, because that's going to be on the test. But uh, the Ordo Salutis is just Latin for the order of salvation, right? And this is a big thing with the reformers during the Reformation. They kind of mapped a lot of this out and um, our churches have picked it up. All right. So the fourth thing on the list is called conversion. So we have uh, election first, then we have the gospel call, then we have your heart is made right and your heart gets fixed in the moment of regeneration, you're born again. And then once you're born again, the next step is what we call conversion. Um, the guy, Greg Allison, who, I don't know, one of you guys borrowed that book from me. That's a fantastic book, the little 50 truths of the Christian faith. Oh, yeah, 50 truths of the Christian faith. A lot of these come from that book. He says conversion is the human response to the gospel, and it consists of two things, repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. So now that your heart's been fixed, it's your turn to act. It's your turn to do something with this new heart. And the two things you do are repent from sin and then put your faith into Jesus Christ. Now, last week, do you remember, I told you guys about my brother's uh, post-COVID sickness called parosmia. And what parosmia is, if you weren't here, parosmia is 
a disease that a lot of people, I think he said one in a thousand people got after they had COVID, where their brain got rewired to, they would taste things and a strawberry tasted to them like the smell of garbage. Their brain was rewired and it was like wrong. And then they would taste something else and it would taste like what the, the acidity of vomit. You know, you would taste like, imagine eating something and it tastes like vomit to you. And so the problem is Ben's brain was rewired incorrectly. And so what I said was that's the condition that we're all in before the fall, uh, after the fall, is that we're free to choose God as much as we want. The problem is to God, I mean, sorry, to us, God tastes like garbage, right? We look, we don't want that. And so what we need is the rewiring of our hearts. And that's what regeneration, the last step is. And then in this step now, strawberries taste like strawberries again. And so it's our turn to then pick up a strawberry and eat it. And we do that. We, we, we look at God and we go, yes, that's what I want. I can't believe my old life. And so we do two things, faith and repentance. Now, repentance I've talked a lot about. Repentance is um, just, it's the easiest thing to describe because the word means to turn around. It's like you were looking at sin and Jesus is behind you. So you just turn around, you look at Jesus. That's what repentance means. It means I, I'm turning my back on sin. And then the second thing, though, that we do is then we put faith. We put our faith in him. Um, oh, I don't have this quote in here. Let me read you this quote uh, from this guy, Martin Manser. He describes faith like this. I like it. It's a confidence in and a commitment to Jesus Christ. Faith is confidence that, like, yes, this is how I'm saved, and it's making a commitment. The illustration that pastors have been giving since chairs were invented about faith is that faith is like sitting in a chair. You can intellectually know, I think that chair will hold me up, but it's not faith until you sit in it and you put your whole weight on the chair. Because what you're doing is if the chair, has anybody ever broke a chair? You guys, it's really embarrassing. I've done this. You know, you sit in a chair and then the, one of the legs gives out and you know, you're at some party you got invited to, you don't even know anybody. No, I didn't. Right. But anyway, if you're in a chair, you're trusting that those four legs are gonna hold you up. And you're, right now, all of you sitting in a chair, you're putting faith in that chair because your whole body weight is in that chair. If one of those legs decided to give out, you would fall and you would hit the ground. That's what faith is. It's confidence that Christ can hold me, Christ can save me, and then it's putting my life in a position where all my weight is on that, right? My spiritual weight. I don't have, there's no backup plan, right? Nobody ever like gets a chair and then puts a smaller chair underneath it, right? Because just in case this one breaks, we don't do that because we trust these chairs. There's no backup plan to salvation. It's Jesus or nothing, right? And so that's how we live. Now, one thing I want to point out, too, is that this sounds a lot like faith and repentance. This is the part you do, and I did kind of just say that, but I also don't want to give you the impression that it's all you do it, but you also do it empowered by the Holy Spirit, right? It's not all you. You don't get to be like, oh, look at me. I'm so great. This is Ephesians. We read this last week. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Even your faith is a gift of God. Uh, not result of works, not something you do so that no one may vote, so that you don't get to be a proud idiot who goes around, look at how great my faith is, right? And so even the faith that you muster up is a gift uh, from God. And so think about this. What this means is salvation. Like, how, look how God is the main story of salvation. We're going to talk about this at the end, right? He elects you. He fixes your heart. Then you respond in faith. And then once you respond in faith, you start reading Ephesians and you go, oh, even that faith was me acting, but the power behind it was coming through the Holy Spirit, right? And so 
this is the big idea is what I want you to really see through this whole process is that God's the main character of your salvation. You're not even the main character of your own story. In our passage, let's talk about this. In our passage, then, where do we see this? Do we see faith and repentance in that passage? We do. Um, they, Peter said, this is exactly what Peter told him to do. Repent and be baptized. And so that's what they did. And thousands of them were saved. Um, I want to give you a few verses here that show how important this is in the scriptures. Um, in the next sermon Peter's going to preach, he's going to say the same thing. Repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Um, this verse from Mark. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. Uh, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is the first thing Jesus told people to do was repent of their sins. Hebrews talks about faith. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's a pretty weighty definition. We don't have time to get into all that today. But it's the assurance of the things you hope for, the salvation that you hope for. And it's, you can't see your salvation, right? But you have this conviction that this is how I'm being saved. And then this, the, one of the most famous verses in the New Testament, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is how we live. We're a people of faith. This faith involves us putting the weight of our spirituality on Jesus and saying, if you don't catch me, this is not going to go well because I have no backup plan. And so once you turn to Christ in faith, oh, I'm going to say something else about this order of salvation. Um, we think in the West, we think very linearly, right? Like this happens, then this happens, then this happens. Like what's the order we think of it in terms of time? This isn't necessarily in terms of time, if that makes sense. All of this stuff kind of happens, boom, all when you get saved. Does that make sense? So nobody ever goes, boy, I was elected by God in eternity past, but I haven't repented yet. That comes in a couple of weeks. And then repentance. I haven't been regenerated. I've been regenerated, but I haven't turned to Christ yet. And then, you know, I've turned to Christ, but I have, you know, that's not how it works. This is, there's, I mean, maybe there's a millisecond distinction here, but this is, we're not, we're not talking time-wise. We're talking just the order and kind of how things happen, but it's kind of indistinguishable. So after you have this turning to faith and turning to Christ in faith, the next thing that happens is a courtroom decision. In the heavenly courtroom, you're found not guilty. And that's what we call justification. Um, I'm going to give you two definitions of this one. Justification is the mighty act of God by which he declares sinful people not guilty, but righteous instead, of, instead by imputing the perfect righteousness of Christ to them. And then the New City Catechism that we read most weeks, justification means our declared righteousness before God made possible by Christ's death for us. So, in the courtroom of God, and now, does anybody else like to watch those YouTube videos of, like, when court goes bad? You know what I mean? Oh, man, there's so many of these great court videos. But we kind of have a sense, even if you've never sat, has any, like, if you've never sat in a criminal trial in person, I don't think I've ever been in a room where somebody was like, not guilty or guilty. I've never actually been in one of those rooms, but haven't we all seen that on TV? Right? We all remember OJ, 
right? No, we don't all remember some of these children over here. But uh, <laughs> um, I remember being in, what were we in, seventh grade, Melissa, sixth grade? They stopped school and they rolled in a TV so we could watch the OJ verdict instead of do grammar or whatever we were supposed to be doing, right? So we all have a sense of what it feels like to be in one of those rooms and the, ten the tension and, you know, the, the verdict is going to be read. And man, that must be nerve-wracking, sitting there waiting for that verdict to be read when you don't know what's coming up next. Like, have you ever seen one of these YouTube, okay, am I the only one that watches like a ton of these YouTube videos? But there are some where clearly the person was expecting to be found not guilty and a guilty verdict was read and they just like completely fall apart. That kind of tension, and that's, okay, are you going to spend 10 years in jail or 20 or 30 or whatever? This verdict, we're talking about eternity, eternity, an eternal verdict is going to be read over you. And or if you're, if you're saved, already was. And that verdict comes up. And here's how it works. All the charges get read against you. You guys, you're guilty. Literally guilty of sin. Right? And then Jesus stands up and he goes, yeah, 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 but that guy belongs to me. That girl, she belongs to me. And so then they read the verdict. Not guilty. Even though you're totally guilty. Right? The verdict is read because of you get credit for Christ's life. And he gets credit for your sin. Jesus says, I already paid the fines for this. I already, I already handled this in the courtroom. And so, boom, the, the hammer falls and you're, it's pronounced not guilty. That's what the word um, justification means. Now, um, there are a couple of different views, because the Bible talks about justification. I just want to point this out. There's a few different views of the word justification and what it means. What I just explained to you is the Protestant view, and our church is a... EFCA church. This is our view of the word justification. Um, the Catholic Church has a different view of justification. And actually the fight between Martin Luther and the Catholic theologians over the issue of justification and how that works is one of the reasons that the two kind of split back in the 1600s. So the Catholic Church, our Catholic friends, what they believe, justification is a longer, it's not a one-time declared, even though you're not really righteous, you get credit for Jesus's righteousness. The Catholic Church believes that the justification is a longer process that includes more parts of your life. I'm not going to super get into it. And um, the Protestant Church says, no, 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 it's a one-time, uh, Martin Luther called it an alien righteousness. God doesn't actually make you righteous in justification. You just get credit for a righteousness you don't really have, right? Jesus has that righteousness, but you get the credit. And then the second view that's kind of different is there's a guy named N.T. Wright. <coughs> Sorry, and he wrote a book, a bunch of books, and his view is called The New Perspective on Paul. He's an Anglican bishop, and so his view is it's less about being declared not guilty in a courtroom. He says it's more about being like uh, your name being read off on a roster. You're part of the team. It's kind of, it's really complicated. It doesn't matter. Uh, the scholars write a lot of books angry at each other about what does justification mean specifically. Um, but... Uh, you know, the view of our church and a lot of folks is this idea that it's the, it's the courtroom. And we'll get into some of the other stuff later in a minute with sanctification. All right, I want to read you a couple of verses about justification, where we see this in Scripture. Uh, this is from Romans 3. Um, they're justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation, like a substitute by his blood, to be received in faith. 
by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance. He passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So basically, this is how this works. This is kind of a complicated thing, and someday maybe I'll teach Romans. Dude, you guys, Romans is like, it's a whole thing. It's a great book, but it's pretty complicated. Um, we're going to do Ephesians next, which is like the idiot's guide to Romans. You know, <laughs> it's like the, the dumbed-down regular people version of Romans. Um, anyway, the point is, it works like this. Um, how, the question is, how can God be a just God if he just passes over people's sin? How can he be just and the justifier? is the idea. And the way is through the death of Jesus, through the propitiation of Jesus. Because of Jesus' death, God looks at you and he doesn't see your sin. He looks at you and he sees Jesus' perfect life. Right? That's the alien righteousness. It's not your righteousness. It's Jesus's. And so, um, I'm going to skip some of these verses here. All right. And so, this is the process. Okay, so where are we now? We've done, uh, let's see, election gospel call, regeneration, then we've converted and we've turned to Jesus. Once we've done that, in the courtroom of heaven, we're found not guilty, even though you guys were totally guilty. And then after we've been found not guilty, and we've had this righteousness of Christ laid on us, the next step is we're brought into the family of God. And so this the sixth uh, part of the Ordo Salutis is what we call adoption. And so uh, I'll read you this here. Greg Allison, another, that same guy. He says, adoption is the mighty act of God. I love that. Okay. First off, adoption is a big deal. Okay, it's not something small. It's a mighty act of God to take sinful people, enemies who are alienated and separated from him, and incorporate them as beloved children into his family forever. Adoption brings with it an inheritance, and Christians are fellow heirs with their brother, Jesus Christ. Adoption as children into the family of God means further that Christians are brothers and sisters united with one another. So, humans, right, we adopt people, it happens. It was a thing in the Roman world especially. It happened a lot actually with Romans. They would adopt adults, you know that? And then so that, that person could be my heir. Julius Caesar adopted Octavian, who became, you know, Caesar Augustus, as a like, I think it was like a late teenager kind of thing. But human adoption is cool. And you guys know I like this a lot on account of what we've, you know, how we adopted and everything. Um, but in human adoption, here's the idea. You take in a little kid, right? So um, the, the day after Thanksgiving, she even listening to me now? Okay. The day after Thanksgiving, when she came home, she came to us for the first time. She came into our house, and uh, she was a scrawny little thing, but she was cute as a button, you know? And we have fun, right? You remember? You were there. And, um, you know, we were playing with her, and when she, we were, she was real cute. And then she lived with us for a while, and then you guys know the story. And then eventually we adopted her, and she's super cool. And uh, brought her into our family. And it drives me nuts when people say things like, are you ever going to have any real kids? You know what I mean? Stuff like that. Like, when if you're adopting right, not the Harry Potter kind of adoption, you know? You guys know you've seen like, that family that treats him like he's not part of the family, but real, like live in the closet kind of thing. But real adoption brings people in to the family. But here's the thing. The people we bring in are cute. And, you know, right? And we like them. 
and she's great. And so it's really not that impressive. Oh yeah, you chose to invest a bunch of your time and energy and stuff into somebody that you really like. Oh wow, you're such a hero. I mean, not really, this kid's great, you know? God's adoption works very differently. Okay, because what God's adoption is, is he shows up and he brings into his family people who hate his guts and people who are evil and sin and like have lived in rebellion against him, spit in his face. And he says, you know what, I'm going to save you anyway, and then I'm going to make you one of my kids. That's a cool story. Sometimes I read stories about that. Um, like there's a story. Okay, I'm going to... You guys can Google this. Can you let me have a pastor's moment where I don't remember all the details, you know what I mean? And I didn't bother to look it up. But I remember seeing a story of a man who killed another guy and was serving manslaughter, kind of whatever, you know, a bunch of years. During that time, the guy's mom, the victim's mom, was a believer. And she went and she met with the dude. She was like, I forgive you. And in prison, the guy kind of got his life turned around or whatever, you know, sobered up and that sort of thing. I think he was a drug addict. And uh, got out of prison and became kind of a adopted member of the family of the guy that he had killed. And the reason that that mom did that was because she was a believer. And she had this in her heart because that's what Jesus did for me. I was his enemy. I was the father's enemy, and then he brought me into his family, and he treated me like his own beloved son. And these are the two benefits from the definition. Look at this. The benefits are you get the inheritance, right? Blessed are the... They will, wait, what is it? Who inherits... I forget off the top of my head. One of them inherits the kingdom of heaven, right? Everything that Jesus gets, you get, right? We get to split the inheritance with Jesus. That's the first thing. The second benefit is now, not only are... Am I brought into the family of God and Jesus is like my brother? But at the same time, so are you guys, right? We're uh, like, again, let's not push the illustration too far, but like, is he in heaven, right? We've both sort of been brought into this family and we're like brothers and sisters, even though that's not how we were born, right? And so when we show up here on Sundays and when we hang out and we go get dinner, Am I hearing music? Am I going crazy? Or is everybody else hearing music too? Okay. <laughs> gotcha. Anyway, we're all brought into this family. Um, no, it's fine. I don't know. I mean, unless everybody's all right, you can listen to the singing. We're cool. We're not going to show up at somebody else's house and go, oh, hey, actually, can you uh, turn the music down? Um, <laughs> what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So we're all brought into this um this family together. And we've talked about this a bunch, but that means what binds us together is stronger than what binds us to our natural families. What we have here, this adoption together is eternal, right? And so our relationships are, e listen to me for a second. If you don't like me, especially listen to me for a second. Our relationships are eternal. That's a very long time. And so what we do together now What's the line from Gladiator? Echoes into eternity or whatever. Like it actually does. And so like what we do as a family has weight to it because we've all been adopted together. Uh, this is what, well, here's this verse where Jesus was talking. He says, my brother and my mothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. This is the scriptural support. 
I'll give you a few of these verses here. Uh, these two from one Ephesians and one Romans. Right. He predestined us for what? For adoption. When Jesus was looking, when God the Father was looking forward, you know, the Trinity, all of them together, looking forward and electing us, he says the reason we're going to be electing them is so that they can be part of this family. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers or brothers and sisters. Let's not, you know, let's not get too hung up on that word there. Right, siblings. We're siblings with Jesus and we're all siblings with one another. Now, here's why this is so cool. And here's why this step comes where it does. It, it comes after justification. After you've been declared not guilty in the courtroom of God, you are brought into the family. And one of the things that the family does is we help each other stop being so terrible. Right? And so the next step is what we call sanctification. Sanctification uh, in the, from the New City Catechism means our gradual growing righteousness made possible by the Spirit's work in us. Um, and then Allison has one, Greg Allison. Sanctification, specifically progressive sanctification, um, is the corporate, uh, sorry, cooperative work of God and Christians by which ongoing transformation, uh, by which ongoing transformation into greater Christian, Christ-like, I can't read, I'm tired, you guys. I'm still full of NyQuil. <laughs> greater Christ-likeness occurs. Sanctification is cool. Sanctification, let me tell you the difference between sanctification and justification. And this is one of the things that when you read all the scholars and the Catholic theologians and the Protestant theologians, this is one of the points they argue about, is Catholic theologians uh, kind of lump these two together. Sanctification and justification is kind of one big process, and we say they're two separate things. But let me tell you the difference between these two separate things. In justification, it's a legal standing. It's something that happens outside of you. Sanctification is your internal condition. Does that make sense? It's something that's happening within you. Justification happens once. You are declared not guilty in the courtroom of God. Sanctification continues through your whole life. And sometimes it goes really well and sometimes it goes terribly. But your sanctification, can, and we'll talk about this with perseverance in a minute, doesn't undo your justification. Right? They're not connected. How well you live doesn't change your status in the courtroom of God. Justification is entirely a work of God. When you're declared not righteous and you are given that righteousness, that's just all work of God. Sanctification is you and God working together to make your life better and the church working with you. Justification is perfect in this life. You can't ever get more justified, right? It's, a, it's all or nothing. But sanctification is not perfected in this life and it can grow and shrink and it changes throughout this life. Justification is the same for all sinners. Um, sorry, for all, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Christian, there we go. Uh, justification is the same no matter who you are in the church and the family of God. We're all justified the same. Nobody gets to walk up and go, I'm more not guilty than you. Right? But the truth is, some people have a greater sanctification than others. There are some people that you're like, oh, that's the most sanctified person I've ever met. Does anybody know somebody like that? I know a few people like that where I'm just like, whoa that I've met. I remember, um, was it in one of his books, Francis Chan says that Johnny Erickson Tata, the, the woman in the wheelchair with the diving accident, if you don't know who she is, you should read some of her books. She's amazing. He said she was like the most sanctified, spirit-filled person he's ever met in his life. Um, I bet that's probably true. Okay, so sanctification, let's talk about, you know, we see this idea throughout scriptures, right? He says, Jesus praying at the high priestly prayer for our sanctification. Sanctify them in your truth, in the truth. 
Peter talks about this, like newborn infants long for spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into your salvation. Right? That's sanctification. Uh, Philippians, there's a verse in Philippians. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not uh, only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. So he's like, you know, I'm, I'm gone, but you should still be doing this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. So do you see the two sides of that? Right? Uh, Paul says, work out your own salvation, meaning you've been declared not guilty, now you should start acting like it. You should become the thing that you've already been declared. You should do it. And you're like, yeah, I should do it. Good idea, Paul. And then you read the next sentence, because it's God who does it to you. Okay. Wait, what? <laughs> right? I'm gonna, so the Bible kind of presents these two in tension. That your, your sanctification is something you do, and it's something that God does through the work of the Spirit in you. And this is where the church comes in. This is why we're all brothers and sisters. We help each other in our sanctification. If you kind of put yourself off in a silo where nobody gets to speak into your life, your sanctification is going to hit a wall. If you're kind of separated from real, actual relationships where people can look at you and go, hey, you know you suck, right? <laughs> like, what are you doing? This is not what we've been called to do. Let's pray about this. Let's talk about this. Let's come up with a plan. If you're over there, nobody gets to see you and nobody gets to do those things. And then at the same time, if you're over there and you're not living life with church people, you don't get to help them. And so the reason that we're all living on top, you know, like we're all just hanging out constantly is because we're all making each other better. It's like spiritual Weight Watchers. You guys know about Weight Watchers? Yeah. So it's the thing where you lose weight and you go, it's like AA for big people. And they go and they say, this is what I ate this week. And then somebody goes, cupcakes? You know, I don't know. I've never been to Weight Watchers. Um, do you guys remember that news story, by the way? When the, well, the worst news story of all time, the Weight Watchers floor collapsed and then everybody fell down the second story anyway but Weight Watchers is like the reason it works and the reason I mean they're everywhere and it's the reason AA kind of works right and some of these things is because you need somebody else there that struggles with the same thing as you and somebody else can say how much Weight Watchers is like based off of points or whatever but like tell us what you ate this week tell us how you worked out this week and the people that go they know well, I'm gonna have to go and I'm gonna have to tell everybody Right. And then those people, you know, you get the idea, you get the analogy, right? It's like iron sharpens iron kind of a thing. That's what we're doing. Spiritual Weight Watchers. That's what we're going to change the name of church to. From the porch to spiritual Weight Watchers. We're all helping each other shed the sin. Okay. Let's keep going here before I say something's going to get me fired. Perseverance. Um, after the sanctification. So you spend your whole life with church people trying to be more like Jesus. And during that, you persevere to the end, right? During that process of sanctification, you make it to the end. You finish the race. Here's the definition. Perseverance is the mighty act of God to preserve Christians by his power through their ongoing faith until their salvation is complete. Assurance of salvation is the subjective confidence that is the privilege of all genuine believers that they will remain Christians throughout their life. Okay, I really like that definition. Because he starts again with perseverance is the same as last time. It's a mighty act of God. 
So your perseverance is God working through you. And look at how it happens, though, through your ongoing faith. So here's a question that people have been asking for a long time. Can you lose your salvation? Can you walk away from your faith? And uh, there's a pastor who said once, um, I like this. He said, look, if I could lose my own salvation, I totally would. Right? And the idea is this. I think we're asking the wrong question. Instead of asking, can I lose my salvation? It's the question we should be asking is, could Jesus let go of me? Does that make sense? Since my salvation is not even up to me at the beginning, it's all a work of God through my life anyway. Thinking about it in terms of me is the wrong perspective. I should be thinking about it in terms of God. And the, the thing here and the thing we get through Scripture, the idea we get through Scripture is not that um, I'm going to keep my salvation because I'm so good. But the Bible is filled with warnings to not walk away from the faith. The Bible is filled with warnings to not neglect your sanctification and meeting together and filled with commands to do the things that you're supposed to do as a Christian. And because of those warnings and because of those commands and because of this church community, God is going to help you persevere to the end. It doesn't mean that you just sit back, put your feet up, and everything is just you know, cozy until the end. Right? The Christian life is hard work, and there's a reason we call it perseverance and not just sitting around. Right? It is something you work at, but if you were truly regenerated, then at the end, you'll be there. Your name was written in the book of life before, you were, before creation, and God wrote it in ink. Right? And not, do you guys remember from middle school that those, the pens that you're supposed to be able to erase? You know, not, not that kind of pen, right? Real, actual, can't get rid of this, ink on paper, your name is in that book. And so if your name is in that book, you're going to make it to the end. But you're going to do, throw, do so by being filled with the Spirit and then working hard at your salvation. And I like what he put here, um, is until they're, they're going to keep going until their salvation is complete. Right? When your salvation is complete at the end, you're going to work. It's a whole process, this salvation. Your life we can say because of justification was a one-time legal act. I've been saved. But at the same time, the Bible talks about it like this. I'm being saved. This process is still happening to me through sanctification and through perseverance and being filled with the Spirit. I want to read you just a couple of the biblical support for the idea that God will always hold on to his own. And he will help you to persevere. He will empower you. This is Jesus talking. He says, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's pretty clear, isn't it? I like that. My Father, who has given them to me, he's greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So if you belong to Christ, he's got you in his hand. and He's going to make sure you get there in the end. And that's why, right towards um, the end of the Bible there in Revelation, in the section about the, the letters to the churches, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will seize your crown. So at the same time, we have both sides of this coin. We are commanded to work hard at making sure we make it to the end. And at the same time, we're guaranteed we're going to make it to the end because Jesus holds us in his hand. And I like both of those. I like, I like that balance. I like the, the, that, the idea of that truth. And if you make it to the end, 
and oh, I'll say this too, real quick, before I get into the next one. There are people that walk away from church all the time. There are people who walk away from public declarations of faith. But these are the kind of people that never had the faith, the deep roots of actual saving faith. These are people that experienced a lot of the benefits of being part of the community of faith without the regenerated heart. And Jesus tells that parable, you know, of the, the different kinds of soils. And he tells the parable of the, the weeds and the, the wheat, you know, and they all grow up together. And so we know that there are people like that. It's never our job to say, ah, I bet you're not one of the real ones. It's our job to look around at church and help people to persevere to the end. And when we do persevere to the end, that's the next, the final step, is glorification. Uh, I'll read you this definition of glorification. Is the final step in the application of redemption. So it's the last step in this process. It will happen when Christ returns, raises from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died, reunites them with their souls, and changes the bodies of all believers who remain alive thereby giving all believers at the same time a perfect resurrection a body like his own. Isn't that cool? Okay. In some traditions, in some church traditions, um, glorification, this idea of glorification, means becoming like one with God, or becoming one with the Trinity. There was a famous church father guy named Origen. You guys ever heard of this guy? No? Anybody? Yeah. Anyway, church father. Um, he was influenced by Plato, and in his idea, it was very much like becoming one with the, the great consciousness kind of stuff. You guys have heard that kind of talk before, right? And he says that's what glorification is. And a lot of the medieval monastic people and some of those guys that you'll read, they're kind of heading towards this bent that we become one with God. But um, I love this quote from Michael Horton, who's a pastor, a theologian guy. Instead of making us something more than human, Grace saves and liberates humans to become more human. Finally, to glorify and to enjoy God forever. So the idea with glorification is this. You're not becoming more than human. And I hate when pastors and people talk about heaven as if we're going to be something that's not human. Like we're going to be omnipresent or we're going to know everything or that we're going to have superpowers or like all this stuff. And I'm just, I, I read the Bible and I, no, like Michael Horton is right. We're not going to become more than human, but we're going to become uh, more human. We're going to become the, the humanest humans of all time. And the purpose of humanity is to, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's from the Westminster Catechism. That's the main reason that we're even here, is to praise God's name and to enjoy being in his presence and to enjoy being with other people who love to be in his presence. That's what we were created for. And so the most human thing that you can do is that. And that's going to happen when someday you die and you open your eyes and the sin is gone. And the process of intermediate, we're not getting into all the different what happens in the end times ideas. But here's what will definitely happen. You will die at some point and then you will open your eyes and sin will be gone. And then at some point after that, you will have a resurrected body. And you're going to live in the new heaven and new earth and everything is going to be perfect. And you're not even, you're going to have this like sense of perspective that you've never had. And you're going to see your life completely different from the way that you see it now. You're going to go, this is how it was always supposed to be. I never realized how much that sin was ruining my life until it's gone. Right? You ever hiked up a mountain or something with a backpack on and then you took the backpack off? 
I've never hiked, but I've heard it's a terrible. Or here's my other illustration. You ever go to the movies and you get popcorn and you're eating the popcorn and then the piece gets stuck right here in the back of your throat and you're sitting there the whole movie doing this. <laughs> and the guy next to you is like, what is it having a, <laughs> you know, you're making that noise and you go home and it's still there and the whole ride home, you're, <laughs> you're doing this and you're like, I'll kill this piece of, I'll kill everybody that eats popcorn. I hate this so much right now. And then finally you're sitting there and you're watching the Niners or whatever and you go and it pops out and you're like, hallelujah, you guys, this is what it's supposed to be like. Okay, it's like glorification is that piece of popcorn leaving your throat. Sin is gone. And then you can eat and you can drink Coke and you can swallow things and there's no popcorn in your throat. You go, man, this is how it's supposed to be. I think if we had any kind of an understanding of how awesome this is going to be, every single one of us would live completely differently than the way that we live now. And we would think about different things all day. We would spend our money differently. We would spend our time differently. I think one of the things that's holding back churches and Christians and people following Jesus is that we don't really have a sense, because there's, it's so hard to, but we don't really have a sense of how amazing this is going to be. And how small a percentage of our existence this life is. This life seems long, especially the last month. Because I've been sick for a month. And it seems like this is never going to end. But the, this, this life, from when I was born to when I'm going to die, my 80s maybe, I don't know. But however long it is, however long the Lord gives me, is such a small percentage of how long I'm going to be alive with no sin. And I'm going to look back at my life and say, I can't believe that I did whatever it was. I can't believe that I really didn't understand the life I'm living now. I can't believe I didn't have this perspective. And so that's our last step of salvation. Um, let me see. I'm going to jump forward one thing here. Um, and we're going to end with this. This is the ending. The tenth thing on our list, but it's not really a part of the order of salvation is. I just want you to see this. You are not even the main character of your own salvation. And this is important. In the West, we think of everything individually. And thanks to philosophers and the way that our culture has moved in the last 100, 150 years, we've been programmed to think that we're the center of the world and everything is about us and everything's about our story. And you've got to write your story and you've got to be true to yourself. You've got to do all this stuff. The biblical story in the gospel presents a very different picture of salvation. You aren't the main character of the Bible. And we'll talk about this as we get into like interpreting the Bible in our how to study the Bible class. But you're not even, you're not the main character of the Bible and you're not even the main character of your own story. God is. Look at what we just learned about in the order of salvation, in the order of salutis. It's God who elects you. It's God who regenerates you and justifies you. It's God who gives you the power for sanctification. It's God who brings you into his family. It's God who glorifies you in the end. Right? This is all stuff that God does to you. Right? He's the main character of your story. And the reason that that's important is because in our Pabst Blue Ribbon outreach pathway, we have to pray for people, ask them about their lives, bless and love them in ways nobody else would, share your story with them, and then talk to them about the gospel. Those last two points, sharing your story, this is 
what I want you to think about. This is why I did this for two weeks. I want you to think about your own faith story and um, how can you tell that story in a way where you don't come off looking that great, but God comes off looking that great. Does that make sense? So let me give you two versions of the story, the same story. I'll give you two versions of my story. Let's just do mine real quick. Okay, one, I grew up in church. I didn't really believe it. I wasn't buying it. Then, I don't know, around high school, kind of the end of high school, I started taking faith a little more seriously. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to church. I, I made sort of a profession of faith. Um, and I started helping out with youth group, and then I became a pastor. You know, I've been a pastor for, I don't know, what is it now? What am I, almost, almost 20 years now? Right, and I've been working hard and serving the Lord. That's one version of the story. Who comes off looking great in that story? The guy who just spent 20 years working for the Lord and who got his life turned around. Now, let's tell the same story the way it actually happened. I was horrible, and I stole things, and I lied to people, and I manipulated people. I was mean to people. I was the most arrogant kid you ever met because I was good at basketball. Like, that matters, right? I got pretty good grades, whatever. So I was, like, pretty full of myself. And every time the idea of God came around, my thought was, I don't need him. I'm already pretty great. And then one day, somebody asked me a question. Uh, why are you such a... I'll bleep it out here. Uh, why are you such a... <laughs> and you go around telling everybody you're a Christian and you go to church. And that hit me like a thunderbolt. Because that was God saying, you're terrible. And that was that moment that I was cut to the heart. And then through the grace of God and the hard work and the love of a couple of Christian brothers and sisters at my church... I came to faith, and I was discipled, and I got dragged into ministry against my will, and that's how I started, and God has been faithful. I was a terrible youth pastor when I first started, and I just had a kid come up and tell me, you were such an influence on my life and all this stuff, like I was at a wedding a while ago, and I was like, how though? Like, I was so bad, you know? And so clearly, God was working in that kid's life, and the stuff that's happened in my ministry has been greater than anything I've done. And you, let's be honest, I don't really, you know, I'm not that great, and I'm still the pastor and whatever. That's two versions of the same story. And in one of them, Jesus is the hero. And in one of them, I'm the hero. He died for me. He saved me. I didn't deserve it. I wasn't even looking for him. Let's be real. Right? He snatched me out of the pit of hell. And so what I want you to do is, I want you to understand the process of salvation so that you can tell that story better. I want you to think about how you can frame that story with each of the people in your Pabst Blue Ribbon journals and whatever. And so that's how we're going to close, and that's how we're going to leave. This is what I want you to do. Here's your homework. You ready? Not a lot of sermons have homework, but this one has homework. If you have one of those Pabst Blue Ribbon journals that you're here and you want to uh, follow the homework, this is the homework for the next couple of weeks from our Wednesday nights. So I'm not going to give homework this Wednesday night for the Pabst Blue Ribbon thing. I want you to write a very brief outline somewhere in that journal there's blank. Do we have blank pages? Yeah. So grab a blank page, put it in there. And I want you to write an outline of how to tell your story like you're the hero, because I want you to look at it. And then I want you to go, that's not how I ever wanted. I want it to be in your mind to not do it that way, but I want you to write it out. And then I want you to write out in the other column, how to tell your story as if Jesus is the hero. How is his power of the spirit sanctifying you now? Right? How did he save you when you weren't looking for him? How is he bringing you into eternity? Where is your hope? 
all that sort of stuff. Cool? All right, next week, uh, come back, same bat time, same bat channel. We're going to do the next part of Acts 2. We're doing just 242. If you want to read ahead, you got one verse. And then the two weeks after that, we're not going to be here on Sunday. Um, so just make sure you don't go to church because you'll be the only one here. Um, go to the other church, I mean, don't come here. But the last week of the year, we're going to do the, um, our liturgy, but at their place. So we are going to be back in Acts on the 31st. Cool? All right, let's pray.